0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale
1: University. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers, where we provide you with up-to-date information on cancer care and research. Our host, Dr. Stephen Gore, is Director of Hematological Malignancies at Smilo and an expert on myelodysplastic syndromes. He interviews some of the nation's leading oncologists and cancer specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. If you're interested in listening to past editions of Yale Cancer Center Answers, all of the shows are posted on the Yale Cancer Center website at yalecancercenter.org. If you'd like to join the conversation, you can contact the doctors directly. The address is canceranswers at yale.edu. Here's Dr. Gore. Welcome to another episode of Yale
2: Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore, and I'm joined today by my guest, Dr. Hari Deshpande. Dr. Dishbandi is Associate Professor of Medicine in Medical Oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. He's here with us to discuss advances in the diagnosis and treatment of prostate cancer in recognition of the Prostate Cancer Awareness Month, known as Movember. Uh, Hari, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. What is Movember? Um,
0: well, this is something that started in Australia, actually, um, it was designed to raise health uh, raise money for men's health okay and they chose november because the idea is men would start to grow a mustache starting november 1st they they're meant to take a picture of themselves with no facial hair and then they grow it throughout the month they're not allowed to shave it and then they take another picture at the end of the month or during the month to show that they've actually participated and um because of that, it brings attention to themselves, and they, when they're asked why are you doing that, they say to raise money, and they're meant to raise money for for November. And then, how do they raise money? I mean, um, it's really by getting so- solicit donations. Exactly. So um, some people will have a sign um, out at the front of the office to say, "Please put some money in here for November." other people will do events. Um, here at Yale, one of the research assistants did a, an auction to raise money for Movember. Uh, she was actually a woman and she wore a plastic mustache for the whole month.
2: Oh my gosh, I was going to ask what happens to the those uh, guys who don't have the robust facial hair and where yes. It looks kind of sad. <laughs> I think you can you can use artificial uh, means. <laughs> I see. Okay, so it's really just to call awareness, then. Yes. Huh. Has this been a very successful fundraising uh, endeavor?
0: Um, I think it could be better here at, at Yale. We we've raised some money. Um, other places around the world have uh, raised, I think, millions of uh, equivalent of millions of dollars. Hmm.
2: And does it go to uh, does do the donations go to a specific um, not for profit or?
0: Uh, that's a good question. I'm not sure if it's not for profit, but there is a a fund called the Movember Fund, which people can then apply to to get money
2: for research or something to do with mel- men's health. Gotcha. So it's not exclusively prostate cancer? Then? No, it's not. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Well, thanks uh, Thanks for clarifying that. I didn't know that, actually. So what what's new in, in prostate cancer? Uh, you know, men have prostates and we worry about them. Th- that's true. Um, I think the biggest changes over
0: the past few years are in the um, early detection and screening, um, but there've also been some newer treatments that have come around in the last few years as well.
2: Mm. Well, let's start with the, with detection because, uh, you know, from where I sit, uh, uh, as an oncologist, yeah. uh, you know, I, I get lots of conflicting, I mean, I read a lot of conflicting, well, blurbs, I don't go into the data too too deeply, and uh, certainly, I think the public is is uh, quite confused about uh, whether people should get PSA screening or not. And why don't you talk about that?
0: I think uh, it is very confusing, and it it depends on how you interpret the results of the various studies. Sure. So, as you know, um, when um, when I was at medical school and in residency, the teaching was that every man should start getting a PSA test starting at the age of 50 and continuing, um, in some cases, uh, for the rest of their life. Uh, Some places would put an age limit of about 75. Um, But either way, uh, it was considered the right thing to do to get a PSA test. And uh, for people who haven't heard of PSA, this is just a blood test that uh, measures something that is produced by prostate cancer cells. And it's also produced a little bit by the normal prostate, but you shouldn't have a very high level if you don't have prostate cancer. But um, over the years, in the last 20 years or so, people have looked at how effective a screening test this really is. And there have been many, many studies all over the world that have looked at people who got the test and then people who didn't get the test and then said, well, what happened to those people? And probably the most uh, recent one was just published in a very good journal uh, called the New England Journal of Medicine, which is probably our premier uh, medical journal right now. And what they found was, this was an English study, actually, they looked at um, 80,000 men who had been offered a PSA test. About 1,600 of those who were found to have prostate cancer agreed to be randomized or split equally into three groups. One of the groups uh, had just monitoring, or they called it active surveillance, which meant that they didn't have any treatment right then, but their PSAs were monitored Every three months, and they were followed to make sure that they didn't have any other signs of cancer. And the other two groups were either getting an operation right away or getting uh, radiation right away. And what they found was that there was no difference in either the number of men who died in each group from any cause or even the number of men who died from prostate cancer. The differences were in the people who developed what we call metastatic disease, so those whose cancer had spread to different parts of the body. They were about three times higher in the surveillance group than in the surgery or radiation group, but they're still small numbers. In in the article, they said it was about six events per thousand patient years, which is a hard thing to really imagine, but basically these these are very small numbers.
2: So in other words, if a thousand people were followed for a year or if a hundred people were followed for 10 years... That's correct. You'd have six people developing metastatic cancer? Yes, or, that's, that's that correct. Yeah. Well, that doesn't seem like a lot, but on the other hand, um, isn't it really bad when prostate cancer spreads to other parts of the body?
0: It, it is, and I think one of the things to Remember about that particular study is those were all patients whose pSA was found because uh, whose prostate cancer was found because of a pSA blood test and If you look at those cancers that were found, they were all what we call Gleason six or most of them. This is a grading score that we use for prostate cancer. Gleason six is the lowest grade that we usually see for prostate cancer. it goes up to ten. So if you have a... They just
2: happen to skip one through five?
0: Um, they do have one through five. So the way they calculate the score is the uh, when this grading system was originally developed, the uh, pathologist who invented it, who was, his name is Gleason, realized that if you look at the outcome of people with prostate cancer, it doesn't depend on just the most aggressive area of the biopsy, which is the case for most cancers, but it's somewhere in between the most prominent area of the biopsy and the next most prominent um, appearance, if you like, of the biopsy specimen. And what he did was he assigned a grading number of one to five, where five was a very aggressive looking area. And one was an area that looked almost like the normal prostate, and he added the two numbers together, and that's how come we get a number of somewhere between really it's two and ten, I suppose. But generally, f- to uh, to have a diagnosis of prostate cancer, and the pathologist can explain this better than I can. But the numbers start at 6. I think that's when it shows invasion into mm. into the rest of the body.
2: Yeah, you know, I've never understood that. Thank you for explaining <laughs> that to me. Um, so these were, these were all pretty low grade. They all had Gleason 6. Is that what you said?
0: Yeah, these were very low grade. Uh, the PSA, the average PSA was about 4.6, which is very low. So I think what that tells me is if you have a very low grade prostate cancer with a low PSA, it's safe to not have surgery or radiation right away. But I think um, you can't extrapolate those results to people who have higher grade disease or higher PSAs. Mm. Then I think you have to have a more
2: individual conversation. And what's involved in this act of surveillance? How often are you being seen? And is it just blood tests or does it involve biopsies or MRIs? Or...
0: Um, that's changed over over the years as well. Here at Yale for active surveillance, we have uh, under Dr. Shulam's care, he's the head of urology and his colleagues in urology, they have a special MRI test which will localize an abnormal area in the prostate. And MRIs are very, very good for finding prostate cancers. They're much better than ultrasounds which is the traditional way we look at the prostate. And using the MRI, they can then guide the needle to where the um, likely cancer is. Now, this is important because the original way of doing a biopsy was a random biopsy. They would do six biopsies, three or um, often six from each side of the prostate or or, uh, as little as three from each side of the prostate, but one from the front, one from the middle, one from the back, that's sort of the minimum number on each side. The trouble with that is you might be missing the actual area. And so the MRI is a very good way of localizing where the cancer is. The trouble is you can't do a biopsy and an MRI at the same time. Mm -hmm. So they've developed this really amazing machine which will fuse the ultrasound image with the MRI. It creates a 3D computerized image. And then the computer will help guide the surgeon to do the biopsy. It's, it's like something out of a science fiction movie, but it, it works very well. It's called the Artemis machine.
2: So, so It sounds very cool, but it also <laughs> sounds like the procedure is maybe not so comfortable.
0: Um, I, I don't know, actually. I'd have to ask my surgical colleagues. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so... Uh... Well, of course, we, sh- we shouldn't be scaring off people who need the test. Yeah. Of course, it's good to have such a test. Yeah. Um, so why wouldn't everybody just want to have that malignant prostate gone? I mean, I, I even if it's a low number of, uh, you know, people who develop metastatic disease, and even if your chance of dying isn't higher, that, I don't know, that sounds scary. I'd want that thing out of there. Why wouldn't I just go ahead and do that?
0: And, and I think some men do. As soon as they hear the diagnosis of prostate cancer, their immediate reaction is, I want to have it removed. But you have to remember that these operations don't come without side effects. And that's the the main reason that we try and uh, tell patients what their risk is of actually getting a cancer that's going to be harmful to them or cause more problems down the line. And the main side effects are impotence, incontinence, um uh, generally uncomfortable symptoms after having
2: an operation yeah and how frequent are those
0: they uh, vary in in terms of the surgical sites generally somewhere like Yale or a center which does a lot of these operations have much lower rates um i think the numbers are small they're they're less than 10% but they're still if you're one of the people who get these particular symptoms, then it, it can be very, exactly, yes. Yeah. Especially if the disease by itself is not going to cause any problems for the rest of your life.
2: Mm-hmm. So. And does radiation have similar side effects?
0: They're similar. Um, they occur at different times. So after uh, after surgery, generally, everyone immediately gets side effects, and then they they get better over time. With radiation, the side effects are not there right away, but they tend to occur later on. And probably by about a year, the side effects are pretty similar with each um,
2: type of treatment that you take. Mm, I see. Well, you know, when I moved up to Connecticut, I decided I was going to sort of live by the Values that I'd been taught, which was that perhaps uh, routine screening uh, wasn't important for me since I have no family history and so on, and and I went a year or two without screening. And, um, and then one of our urology urologic colleagues uh, was chatting with me and told me about how, in his opinion, that the the, the the reaction shouldn't be to not to not screen, should not be to not screen, yeah. but rather to interpret the screening. Uh, carefully and, uh, you know, not don't take a single value, but look at how things are changing and so on. And um, so this year, I think I got screened. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's it's
0: it's very complicated, and I, I just turned 50 now, so I would be at the age later this year to think about my first screening test, and I haven't got one yet, but...
2: Uh, and my internist leaves it up to me, yeah. you know, but partly because I'm a physician, of course, but I can only imagine how it is for lay people... Right. Um, you know, this is the kind of thing you'd really like somebody to be directive about. You You should yeah. get a flu vaccine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. you need your tetanus up to date. You need your colonoscopy at 50, Dr. Deshpani. Right.
0: That's true.
2: <laughs> <laughs> have you signed up yet? <laughs> Not yet. No. Aha.
0: <laughs> I do want to say that there are three main groups out there and they all have, or at least three, I should say, they all have different screening recommendations. So your colleague from urology will follow the AUA or American Urology Association guidelines, and they still look towards screening as a good idea. Uh, The oncology um, guidelines from ASCO, which is the Clinical Oncology Society, um, is kind of in the middle. Uh, They, again, recommend screening to a certain extent, but the U.S. Preventative uh, Task Force really recommends against it, they Altogether. say... Altogether? Yes, that's correct. And
2: wow. Well, that's... <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, a, that's a real clear message <laughs> exactly, there, huh? Exactly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, um, so it sounds like uh, at some point, uh, if, if somebody is diagnosed with prostate cancer, but some people, I, I assume, get diagnosed because they're having symptoms.
0: Uh, yes, that's true. And I think we're going to see more of that these days. So... In the screening era, most people were diagnosed because they had a high PSA, so they really didn't generally have any symptoms. But now I think we're beginning to see more people who come in because they have symptoms. It's usually of a large prostate, so that's difficulty (coughs) going to the bathroom, passing urine or dribbling, uh, having a poor stream, and sometimes bleeding in the urine as well.
2: Hmm. And those symptoms, from what I hear, are yeah. common in people uh, as they get older, men that, who get older, right?
0: That's absolutely true. And in fact, a large prostate is much, much more common than a prostate cancer. So we see about, I'd say, 200,000 cases of prostate cancer a year. But the the incidence of having a large prostate as you get older is much, much more common than that. So.
2: Well, I mean, if all these guys have large prostates and are having the dribbling problems and other sort of late middle age problems, uh, okay. which of them should be getting further diagnostic testing?
0: Um, I th- I don't think anyone has really come up with a, a good way of telling who should get the test and who shouldn't. But generally, I think um, if you have someone, especially a younger person, who's developing symptoms like that, then I would be more likely to get a PSA test mm-hmm. and do imaging tests. Gotcha so
2: um anyway, so here you've got this guy who's uh you know who's got prostate cancer one way or the other uh, and then then he's got this big decision to make about how it's being managed um and who helps him with that is that is that the surgical urologist do, do they get involved with medical oncology
0: um here at yale uh, i I think we have a great system so the we have a um a meeting which I know you have in hematology as well called a tumor board meeting where we meet with all of our colleagues. um, So that's medical oncology, surgeons, um, and radiation doctors, as well as the people actually looking at the MRIs and ultrasounds, the radiologists, and the pathologists who look at the biopsy. And we all come together to look at the case as a whole and say, well, what's the best option for these for this particular patient? Hmm. And then whoever's seeing the patient will go back and explain what we decided.
2: And do you do that with every new patient?
0: Um, we do it with as many of the new patients as we can. Some of the new patients are, have e- either already made up their mind and it doesn't uh, help to to discuss their case, although some of those we do as well. But generally, we try and do every new
2: patient there. Wow. And um, is there usually a unanimous cons- or a consensus decision, or is it sometimes a bit contentious?
0: I would say sometimes uh, there are differ- differing opinions around the room. And then um, I actually run that particular tumor board, so I have to come up with a message uh, from the board. So it's it's difficult sometimes. So, uh, But uh, generally, if there is a difference, I will let them know that most of the room decided on one uh, option, but some people had another option, and this was their reason for
2: it. So. Well, having worked with you on a number of committees, I'm <laughs> sure you are the most politic person <laughs> about making sure that everybody's voice has been heard <laughs> and that everyone's reasonably accepting of the outcome. I, I try to you're very talented <laughs> at that okay, so um so the patient uh, gets a recommendation, and, uh, and um, they've had their primary treatment. You've already sort of discussed what happens if they decide not to have active therapy in terms of surgery or radiation, but so let's take the people who've had surgery or radiation treatments. Um, Are they good to go? Do they need follow-up?
0: They still need follow-up. So uh, for instance, in the people who've had an operation, we expect their PSA to be undetectable after surgery. So if they have a PSA that's even a little bit detectable, so greater than 0.2, which is a very, very low PSA, then we often would recommend they see a radiation doctor as well because the chances are there's just a little bit of cancer left Mm. and there's a good chance that with radiation they can have a very long period where they're not going to see the cancer again. Um, But generally, after either surgery or radiation, they will be followed for the first year, maybe a little more frequently, and then after that, less frequently, um, with just PSA checks to make sure that there's no evidence that the cancer is coming back. Um, it's hard to uh, tell people that even after a big operation or a very intense radiation, there is still a chance that the cancer, it can come back. It could have one cell could have escaped and uh, started sure. growing somewhere else. So.
2: Yeah. And would I be correct in assuming that in those patients who need additional radiation on top of their surgery, the chance of side effects becomes worse?
0: Yes, that's correct. And I think that's something the radiation doctor will discuss with those patients individually.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Well, it's no wonder that people worry about prostate cancer. It doesn't. Uh, right. It's not a straightforward pathway. And it seems like even with the best treatments, you know, it it can be difficult. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so then, um, what happens if the PSA comes starts to come back after they've had their primary treatment? Um, you know, that must be very scary for patients.
0: It is, and um, that's an area where I think there's a lot of research right now. So, generally, if the PSA starts to come up, but it's it's rising very slowly in other words, it's doubling in a time period that's greater than six months, then most oncologists feel that it's safe to just keep watching those patients as long as uh, they do scans, usually a bone scan and a CAT scan, and there's no evidence of any cancer on those scans. The PSA test is very, very sensitive. The CAT scans and the bone scans will only pick up a cancer if it's more than about one centimeter in size, or maybe a little bit smaller than that. Um, So if if the PSA is rising much more rapidly, or if the scans show that there is cancer somewhere, then the first line of treatment usually, or historically has been to reduce the level of testosterone using various methods. And that started in the 1940s, Back then, we only had uh, orchiectomies um, to to achieve that. That's removing which, the testis. That's correct, and obviously that's a very traumatic operation for any man to have. Now we have medications that can do the same thing, but in a, a just a form of a shot every few months. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a couple of years ago, people uh, were looking at men with quite advanced cancer who were just diagnosed, who had not had prior hormonal therapies, but who now had uh, cancer that was in the bone or in other organs. And they randomized them to get either the standard treatment, which was just reducing the hormones, or adding chemotherapy to the hormones. And for the first time, we saw a significant survival difference in men who had what we call extensive metastatic disease at presentation, who were treated with six rounds of chemo up front and then continued their hormone treatments or uh, versus those who just had hormone treatments alone. Hmm. So well,
2: that shows how out of date I am because <laughs> I remember when prostate cancer wasn't really thought to respond to any chemotherapy.
0: And I, I think that was felt to be the case up until about 10
2: years ago or so. Yep. So I'm 10 years out of date. <laughs> 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 um, okay. Well, what what's coming up? What's new? Uh, what can people, what should we be looking forward to?
0: Um, well, I work with uh, Daniel Petrelak, who's the head of the medical oncology um, urology section um, or urological cancer section. And he's brought in a lot of new clinical trials over the past few years. So over... Probably since about 2010 now, we've had seven or eight new treatments for prostate cancer. Generally, these are either new ways of affecting testosterone, um, either production or the effect on the cancers, or they're ways of better supportive care. So if the cancer spreads into the bone, we now have medications that can strengthen the bone. Um, Actually, we've been using those for women with osteoporosis for a while, yeah. Uh, But now they've also been shown to be useful in um, not just prostate cancer, but almost any cancer that spreads to the bone. And um, we're looking at some newer treatments as well. So there's an interesting treatment called Provenge. It's actually the first vaccine that was ever approved for cancer. It's a way of taking the patient's immune cells out of their body and then in a in a lab, they're, they're combined with a uh, antigen or a protein that is commonly found on prostate cancer cells, and then injected back into that patient. And in the initial studies, it didn't affect the PSA, so people were a little bit disappointed. But when, right. yeah, when they followed those patients, they actually lived longer. And they repeated the study, and again, it didn't affect the PSA, but the patients lived longer. And so what uh, some of the experts, such as uh, Dr. Petrolak, feel is even though the PSA levels are not dropping, they're rising at a slower level after these treatments are given. And so patients actually get some benefit out of it. They, It takes longer for the disease to reach a point where it causes problems.
2: Are the cells injected into the prostate or just into the uh, bloodstream? Into
0: the bloodstream. Yeah, so. that sounds better.
2: Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> Well, I know there's a lot of <clears throat> a lot of these new drugs that we hear about that are activating uh, the immune system. Is anybody combining this kind of vaccine approach with some of these immune drugs?
0: Um, that's a good question. I, I'm not sure about um, if there are any combination trials going on. I know that some of these new immune treatments that you'll have seen on the commercials on TV and right. uh, heard about, uh, which are really very, very effective in diseases like melanoma or lung cancer or, or in your case, Hodgkin's uh, lymphoma, um, they are, um, I would say, disappointing in prostate cancer. They mm-hmm. really haven't shown as much benefit as
2: as we would have thought they would. So. Got it. Um, so I noticed, Dr. Deshpande, that you're not growing a beard.
0: <laughs> no, so I... Uh, well, it's not November 1st yet. It's not November 1st. I have to say I... I chickened out of it last year, but I might uh, change my mind this year. (laughs) Well, I'd like to see it because
2: I think that, you know, you look like you can grow a rather robust beard. Uh, I'll I'll let you know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Dr. Deshpande, thank you so much for joining me on Yale Cancer Answers. This has been a really enjoyable and informative discussion on prostate cancer. And uh, perhaps I'm a little less anxious than I than I have been, although I really wasn't terribly anxious, as you can tell. Um, this is Dr. Stephen Gore wishing everybody in our audience a happy and healthy tomorrow.
1: This has been another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers. We hope that you have learned something new and meaningful. If you have questions, go to YaleCancerCenter.org for more information about cancer and the resources available to you. We hope that you will join us again for another discussion on the progress being made here and around the world in the fight against cancer.